Welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast for the charity myelopathy.org. Where we talk all things cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Michelle Starkey. I'm a scientist and the director of myelopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist and founder of myelopathy.org. So coming up today, we hear from Dr. Michael Phoenix, who of course needs no real introduction in the world of cervical myelopathy, but amongst his many prestigious roles is now, of course, the chair of the myelopathy.org Scientific Advisory Board. This is Myelopathy Matters by myelopathy.org. Welcome everyone. We are currently building up towards the release of our special podcast series, which is going to be dedicated to the top research priorities, which were elucidated in a partnership with AO Spine. So these episodes are going to be dedicated to each individual research priority. And we're going to bring in the experts from the professional side, but also the expertise of people living with myelopathy, really to contextualize exactly why those priorities are so important, what we currently understand and what perhaps are some of the emerging insights to help hopefully introduce those priorities to the world and get more and more researchers involved in answering them. Yes. And one of those experts, one of the researchers that we're going to be talking to is Dr. Michael Failings. Um, and we're delighted that he could come to talk to us um, a couple of times for our podcast series. And as you just said, uh, Ben, he was recently made the chair of the Scientific Advisory Board for myelopathy.org. And you had the opportunity to catch up with him, Ben. This interview actually took place at the back end of 2019, just ahead of our consensus meeting to establish the research priorities. So it is probably quite good timing that we can release this interview now ahead of this dedicated series. Now we've set and established the research priorities. So I guess all things do work out in the end, but it was great that he had some some time to talk and you can really hear and feel the uh, the sounds of New York in the background. Delighted to be joined by Dr. Failings, who, amongst his glittering career, which needs no real introduction, we're delighted to have as the chair of the Scientific Advisory Board for myelopathy.org, and I'm delighted that at the AO Spine meeting here in New York, he's got a few minutes really to talk us through a little bit about his career and some perspectives on, on his, um, his history with myelopathy. But perhaps we could start a little bit about how you, how you got into spinal surgery and then on towards myelopathy. Thank you, Ben. Uh, it's a delight for me to be um, at this um, meeting here in New York, this is a, a meeting of the Recode DCM uh, group, and we're bringing together key stakeholders uh, from the professional and lay communities to define the research priorities for degenerative cervical myelopathy, which is the commonest cause of spinal cord impairment in the world. And I think myelopathy.org is a key to um, enhancing awareness um, of degenerative cervical myelopathy. Um, my path um, to become interested in a cervical uh, myelopathy has been somewhat circuitous. So I um, uh, decided to uh, become a neurosurgeon mainly because I was attracted by the challenges inherent to um, the brain and the central nervous system. And uh, like many uh, students um, in my era, um, we are mainly focused on brain disorders. As a young resident in neurosurgery, however, I was struck by the devastating impact 
of spinal trauma and spinal cord injury. And um, as a result of those impressions and because of the uh, influence of one of my mentors, Dr. Charles Tatter, I refocused my career in spinal cord injury. And to do that, I undertook a PhD in, in basic science in spinal cord injury, and then ultimately decided to focus my practice in spinal uh, neurosurgery. Now, why degenerative cervical myelopathy? Well, the reality is that um, uh, DCM is the most common cause of spinal cord impairment, and in fact, it can be thought of a form of non-traumatic spinal cord injury. And um, I was involved in a, a focus issue of the journal uh, Spine about 20 years ago. And the editor of Spine, James Weinstein, challenged me to write a review article on the pathophysiology of cervical myelopathy. And I'd indicated to Jim that I'd never studied cervical myelopathy at the basic science level. And Jim said, well, I think you should. And you are studying spinal cord injury, so think about this. And so I pulled the literature together on cervical myelopathy, and I wrote this review article. And a lot of what I drew on was basic science in spinal cord injury, although there, was, there were some limited studies in cervical myelopathy. And I felt that this represented a knowledge gap. And so I started basic science work in cervical myelopathy. Concurrent with this, there were dramatic advancements in surgical techniques and instrumentation, microsurgery, electrophysiological monitoring, which enabled us to treat patients with complex cervical disorders much more effectively and much more safely. And um, as this evolved, I was struck with another knowledge gap, and that is that the role and timing of surgical intervention for degenerative cervical myelopathy was not known. And I had the good fortune of being involved with AO Spine, which is a remarkable um, uh, foundation which advances education and research for spinal disorders. And um, AO Spine uh, graciously sponsored two large multicenter uh, clinical studies in cervical myelopathy. One was focused in North America, and then the second was an international uh, study. And collectively, we were able to enroll between these um, two studies um, just under a thousand patients. And from this, we learned that cervical myelopathy could be very effectively treated with surgery, that the outcomes were very favorable, and then we also defined some key knowledge gaps. So, for example, how to best manage patients with mild uh, uh, cervical myelopathy or with imaging evidence of cord compression mm -hmm. and no symptoms. Perhaps I could just take you back before those two trials. What was the sort of state of play and sort of practice and how surgery was perceived and performed before, before those, those trials came about? In, in, my, in my residency, I was taught that surgery for cervical myelopathy should be used as a last resort, and the best one could offer people was to try to halt the progression of the disease. And it was not really viewed as a priority. It was not really viewed as something that was a particularly... Uh, attractive um, disorder to treat, 
it was felt that most patients with cerebral myelopathy would remain stable over long periods of time, and there was no particular urgency to intervene surgically. And there has been a, a, a dramatic shift in the um, way cervical myelopathy is viewed in the treatment of cervical myelopathy. So we now recognize that a surgical intervention should not be the last resort. There's an appropriate timing for the intervention, specifically with people with moderate or severe cervical myelopathy. Patients with mild cervical myelopathy, there, there still is a bit of uncertainty in terms of how to best manage those patients. And there have been tremendous advancements from my residency in imaging Magnetic resonance imaging was just um, emerging as a, as a modality. It wasn't widely available in the uh, 1980s. It's now readily available. The diagnosis of cervical myelopathy can be made quite readily. And surgical techniques have evolved dramatically over the last 25 years, along with um, a, a better neuroanesthetic uh, management, better perioperative management. And in some, this has resulted in a game-changing uh, evolution in how we can assess and manage cervical myelopathy. Fascinating. And obviously on the back of those two trials, which has produced enormous amounts of high-quality data and many other knowledge gaps, as you allude to, it led on to these international guidelines almost sort of three years ago now. What led you to think that that was a required step, having produced all this evidence, um, a necessary step, if you like, and, and what led up to their, their development? I didn't originally... Uh, in my career have a particular interest in the development of guidelines. I was more focused in discovery-based research. But as my career has evolved, I have seen that um, many discoveries, either at the basic science level and also at the clinical level, don't get translated into clinical practice. And I have become uh, passionate about um, a knowledge translation, so trying to transfer discoveries into clinical practice that then can have a real outcome for people with conditions such as degenerative cervical myelopathy. And a critical step to do this is to create uh, strong guidelines. And as I was looking into this, I um, became aware that most guidelines are not uh, adapted or adopted by uh, clinicians in practice, and there are many reasons for this. And so um, I became aware of a process called the GRADE process for the development of, of guidelines. And this involves a, um, a two-step process. One is um, uh, defining key questions that can be answered and then and then looking at the scientific literature through a process called a systematic review. And the reviews need to be of the highest quality. They need to be unbiased. They need to be rigorously done. And from that, one can then define the state of the art with regard to the evidence. But that is not enough in terms of the development of guidelines. One then needs to filter this through expert opinion and this needs to be multidisciplinary in process. And the challenge with many guidelines that have been developed in the past is that they have exclusively involved healthcare practitioners from one type of a discipline. For example, neurosurgery or other, other types of disciplines. 
So in cervical myelopathy, we felt that we needed to include surgeons, and this would need to include neurosurgeons and orthopedic spine surgeons, but a whole host of non-operative medical specialties from uh, family medicine or general practice, uh, rheumatology, physiatry, neurology, and so on. And then also include um, healthcare practitioners from non-medical disciplines, such as uh, nursing, physical therapy, chiropractic, occupational therapy. And then also to include the perspectives of people with degenerative cervical myelopathy or spinal cord injury and uh, advocacy groups. And then also including uh, funders uh, and, uh, and administrators. And so we pulled this together and we reviewed the evidence. And from this, we came out with very clear guidelines for the management of moderate to severe myelopathy. And the guideline was that patients should be operated on, barring medical um, uh, circumstances that might prohibit surgery. And then for mild myelopathy, it was recognized that this was a knowledge gap. And uh, we uh, advocated for uh, the concept that patients should be informed about the condition and then one needed to um, use a shared um, decision-making process with people with DCM, and then it might be reasonable to consider surgery. Uh, for example, uh, uh, individuals who uh, perceive that, that the issues are having a big impact on their lives, it's often if they have pain. And then in some circumstances, people are barely aware that they have the issues, and so they would prefer to be followed, and then kind of looking at that. And, and I think these guidelines have identified critical knowledge gaps that then will uh, define research priorities for the future. Which I think obviously brings us on very nicely to, to why we're here at the moment, and I will touch on that in a second. But I did also want to get your thoughts on obviously a recent award was your Ryman Award for your uh, research into improving the health and well-being of, of, of people uh, with age, elderly people. And I noticed in the, the press release your award, I think, was given by the President of New Zealand. Is that right? Yeah, so I received the Ryman Award from Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. And the Ryman Award was established relatively recently, so within um, uh, the past uh, six years, I believe. And um, New Zealand has been at uh, the forefront for um, uh, integrated uh, health care for um, uh, individuals as they age. And the Ryman Award was created through an anonymous uh, do uh, donation uh, it, it, um, to establish uh, an award for the best research of relevance to people who are, who are aging. And they've tried to essentially create um, an award that is as prestigious as the Nobel Prize. It does come with a $250,000 award that could be used for, um, for any, anything that I would want, uh, 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 any research priorities. And the uh, awards panel is adjudicated uh, by a number of individuals, including uh, a Nobel laureate from, from Germany. And I was shocked that I had received um, the, um, uh, this nomination and received the award. It was a great honor. And it was an opportunity for me to really to highlight uh, the importance of degenerative cervical myelopathy. Yeah. And, it, um, and, and I think 
you know, it's an honor to receive this type of an award, of course, but from a practical perspective, um, I think um, one can use uh, the, the receipt of such an award to raise the profile of degenerative yeah. cervical myelopathy. And then, of course, it's in terms of the actual award itself, it's my intention to direct this toward uh, some uh, research, prior, uh, research priorities that will help people with spinal disorders. Yeah. I mean, it's undoubtedly incredible achievement, and I think it reflects a long career in, in raising the profile of a disease which, as you've outlined, had really no profile uh, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and what did it feel like to be mixing with the, the world leaders um, in recognition for, for what you've been doing? Well, it was cool. Um, uh, New Zealand is, a, is, is an amazing uh, a, a country. Um, uh, Jacinda Ardern is a remarkable person, and so that was, that was great fun uh, to meet her. Um, I have been uh, welcomed into the Maori tribe, and <laughs> I've learned to say a few words in Maori and received an official Maori greeting from a senior chieftain, so that was good fun. And then we put together a scientific symposium that brought together um, uh, many um, leading scientists and clinicians in the field, and that was, um, I think, uh, quite, uh, quite impactful. And then closer to home in, in Canada, uh, I had the opportunity to raise the profile of BCM through our uh, national broadcasting service, the CBC, which is our Canadian equivalent of, if you will, of, uh, of the BBC in the United Kingdom. And uh, that uh, uh, interview uh, went viral. And, I, um, and many, many individuals have commented that they had, had, had heard that. And then that also spawned an article in our national newspaper, the Globe and Mail, on the key features of DCM and why individuals need to be aware of DCM, just as they need to be aware of other important, you know, critical conditions. From the, and the idea here is that um, people themselves are key partners in the in the in the provision of healthcare. And after all, it's all about trying to get the best. Um, uh, outcome for an individual. So if an individual is aware of the potential symptoms and signs of BCM, they can flag these to their GP or, or an alternative healthcare provider, and then that will likely then result in investigations which could then lead to appropriate uh, uh, treatment. that was a really interesting um, discussion to listen to, Ben. I think um, for me, one of the take homes was really how throughout his career, how the management of DCM has changed, um, both due to sort of advances in diagnostics and also changes in surgery. I found that part really interesting. It must have been quite a journey for him to go on. Yeah, I was incredibly interested to listen to it myself because, you know, I'm sort of aware that perspectives have changed, but you know, clearly I've only been in practice for sort of 10 years now. So getting that insight back to his residency in, in the 1980s was was fascinating. And, and we have discussed before, not so much in, in that interview, how important MRI has been. And, um, you know, that was obviously in its infancy back, back then.
So another part that I found really interesting from that interview as a scientist myself uh, was the discussion about translational research. So here meaning uh, the translation of findings at the bench to the bedside, so into clinical practice. And I think um, what was surprising to me was that uh, Dr. Failings was saying that this isn't a given. And in actual fact, um, in order to do that, uh, guidelines are essential. And that was something that was new information to me. I hadn't, I wasn't aware of that before. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's obviously multiple translation points, isn't there? There is that movement from a laboratory science into a clinical science, and there's that movement from clinical science to to actually changing clinical practice, and and they're all big hurdles to overcome. And absolutely, and there's nothing that guarantees success of an idea from from bench all the way into 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 practice. Mm, yeah, I, I think that's really fascinating because it's a big topic within the science field. You know, we always talk about translational research, but knowing you're sort, or sort of seeing what that's like from from the point of view of someone who is working sort of in both realms is very interesting. And that it's not a given, you know, that this these types of research finds need to be translated um, into guidelines that then guide, you know, the work that you and, and other surgeons do. Yeah, and I think just touching on that last point, it's something that's, you know, really stems why we're doing the special series in the podcast and really trying all sorts of avenues to get the Recode project out because there can be a major lag in terms of setting these sorts of priorities or, or recommendations, whatever the form of research, and, and, and getting them to, to, to make a difference. And there is quite a, a famous article um, which charts that it can take up to 17 years for a scientific discovery to actually deliver a change in clinical practice. And that's obviously enormous gap. That's a, it's a lifetime in some, some situations. And we really need to work hard to, to shorten that duration. And I think people from outside the field don't really understand that or, or realize that that's the case, that these things do take a huge amount of time to become clinical practice. I think that's certainly the case. And I think the other thing that came to his interview, it, it, it is clearly a journey from, from where it started and it's evolved. And, and, and that's that, you know, as a, as a, someone involved in research, it's, it's, it's always that story, how one finding leads to another, you know, the, the guidelines weren't where he started, but he recognized that that was the next step from, from where that, that sort of series of research had, had come to. So um, I was delighted to talk to him. He was a little bit, um, I think, suffering from a cold at the time, um, but um, it was he, it was really, really interesting to listen to everything he had to say. Yeah, and I think we can't leave that interview without quickly mentioning, at least from the, the point of view of the uh, charity, this is really important. Of course, his winning the Ryman Award, um, which obviously, you know, a massive achievement for him himself, but also really helped to raise um, awareness of DCM, you know, with him at the forefront there. I think so. Yeah. And a great opportunity it comes. I mean, he really, when asked him that question about what it was like meeting Justin Arden, um, he sort of really opened up at that point. It was obviously, you know, a really, really um, personal achievement for him and uh, a really, really great opportunity. But, but yeah, he's using that as a springboard to try and to try and promote that, that awareness, which of course is the number one research priority in this field now. Absolutely. And this wasn't the end of the interview. We're going to hear a little bit more from the interview now, and, and it really targets the Aospine Rico DCM project, and particularly the value of engaging people living with, with myelopathy. And we talk and touch on this emerging idea that has been perhaps uh, underappreciated, that pain is a real important part of cervical myelopathy. We're here today in New York. We're trying to set research priorities, amongst other things, in a, in a multi-stakeholder approach. What's been your perspective of this process so far and, and where it's going? 
Well, I, I'm finding the recode process fascinating. It's taking me out of my comfort zone, so I enjoy that. Uh, so I feel like I'm learning. Um, I do enjoy hearing varying perspectives. Um, it is always a heartfelt process to listen to people who have a medical condition that you try your best to treat and then you know there are ongoing issues and people are are suffering and having these kinds of issues and I think it's also um, quite intellectually challenging to prioritize uh, the areas of research and we're being we we're being asked to develop a list of the top 10 priorities from a, a culled list of 26 priorities and that is quite challenging and then it there's I'm, fine, I'm enjoying the discussions that are going around this interestingly um, one of the key themes that I think will emerge is the importance of raising the awareness by the public healthcare funders um, research agencies of this condition of degenerative cervical myelopathy and that, that this is an important health concern that needs to be prioritized. Yeah, I think I would, everyone would, uh, that resonates with almost everyone I think in, in the community with myelopathy, definitely. Um, and I think an interesting thing will, will be from this is how we, we take that message, whatever these top ten priorities are, and you know, get that into the psychology of, of the people that really need to to act on this and, and, and promote and stimulate the research going forward. It, it will be. It, so I think that's going to be an, an, an interesting next step. Um, so I envision that at the end of today we will have a list of ten priorities. That'll be challenging. There may need to be some rewording of these of these priorities, but we will emerge with a one-page document that can be presented um, and that um, identifies critical knowledge gaps mm -hmm. and that document then can be used at multiple levels in terms of um, engaging uh, societies such as the Cervical Spine Research Society which is why we are in New York City um, healthcare agencies such as the NHS in the UK uh, Canadian healthcare agencies and so on and so forth um, and funders of uh, research such as the MRC or the CIHR in Canada or, or the, or the, the, um, the uh, national uh, research agencies in the United States. I think there's also an opportunity to reach out to funders of spinal cord injury research and potentially to, uh, to persuade these groups that uh, degenerative cervical myelopathy is an important form of spinal cord injury and that the, I hope that they would give consideration to um, um, advocating for uh, conditions other than traumatic spinal cord injury and expanding that uh, further and I am starting to see headway in those areas and I think this recode process will be an important next step to um, define those priorities because there is overlap um, 
in the priorities that individuals with ECM have um, uh, when you look at uh, traumatic spinal cord injury. That's very interesting. They certainly have a very powerful advocacy group, high-profile individuals, and I think that would be an awesome partnership if we could we could benefit from, from, from them. You're here at CRSRS giving a, a key key lecture on, on pain in myelopathy, which we know from our from our own work uh, with the community here is is an important part of their of their disability. I don't know whether you can give us some highlights that you're going to be discussing in the in the in the in the in the, in the, uh, in the symposium. Sure. So uh, I'm a past president of the Cervical Spine Research Society. It's a, it's a wonderful organization, very prestigious uh, medical organization that actually prioritizes degenerative cervical myelopathy. So um, the research uh, topic that I'll be presenting on is pain in cervical myelopathy. And this was inspired um, in part um, by a paper, Ben, that you first authored on a define, which defined the research priorities for people with DCM, and it was pain, it was an eye-opener for me. And so I felt that uh, we could um, interrogate the very large prospective database that we have on degenerative cervical myelopathy and define the uh, impact of pain, the incidence of pain, the types of pain, and severities of pain, and potentially what, if any, impact surgery has. So um, what I learned was that about 80% of people with ECM experience pain, about 20% don't have pain. Uh, most people with ECM have pain that is felt to be mild or manageable, but there's a subset of patients, perhaps about a third of patients with ECM where the pain is very severe. And, and these patients um, uh, really represent a challenge to manage. Overall, the impact of surgery is largely very positive for, um, uh, for pain. So pain is improved, both neck pain and arm pain. Um, and I think this now raises several interesting conclusions and it spawns further research questions. So one point that became very clear was that while we had measures to assess pain, they really weren't um, as thorough as, as I would have liked in hindsight because when we were designing the study, we were more focused on motor disability and, um, and, neural, and, and, and non-pain neurological outcomes. So that, I think, needs to be addressed. The second point is that the impact of spinal cord compression on pain is not clear. So neck pain, for example, has often been assumed to be largely arthritic and mechanical in nature. And that, to a large extent, is likely true. But I'm, I'm now questioning whether a component of neck pain may actually be neurologically based and so where compression of the cord can actually result in neck pain. And, um, and so this then spawns a whole other series of questions. But the other um, aspect of this, which um, also highlights, is that despite excellent surgical management, there are a number of patients that do have residual pain, which is quite substantial. 
And so surgery in and of itself is unfortunately not always sufficient to, uh, to manage the pain adequately. And the pain has a huge impact on people's quality of life. I think this data is going to be incredibly helpful because one of the challenges I face when talking a little about this pain, because it struck me as a totally unexpected finding when we did that study. I was thinking that we were going to contextualize the function, hands and walking were, were really the priorities. Because when you present this to surgeons, they're extremely dismissive of the concept that pain is a feature of myelopathy in my uh, limited experience in the UK. And I think certainly this data is going to hopefully help come across that. But I don't know whether you've had similar experiences or um, issues when you've discussed these sort of topics in, in Canada and around the world. I think the experience worldwide is similar to your own experience in the UK. Um, and I anticipate that um, this paper that I'll be presenting, which was one of the top-rated abstracts of the CSRS, will create a lot of buzz. And I think it will also be an eye-opener for surgeons with regard to uh, looking at the issue of pain a bit more. I was taught that when I was discussing um, uh, cervical spine surgery with patients to never promise them that their neck pain would improve and in fact to counsel patients that their neck pain would not improve. This research has now changed this. Um, it's clear that neck pain does improve um, and which I think is helpful in terms of patients decision-making um, and then it also highlights the fact that not everyone's pain is improved, so then why? And I think it's going to you know, kind of direct this. But as you've pointed out, um, uh, many surgeons are either unaware that pain is a big issue and occasionally dismissive of, of this. But I, I have presented um, this work now in different forums, and it is by and large, well-received by surgeons. And so I think it has given uh, surgeons pause for thought. And ultimately, this is why people go to these types of meetings. You try to walk away from new knowledge. So I'm hoping that the surgeons who hear the talk, and there are also non-surgeons attending the Cervical Spine Research Society, that the people listening to the talk will walk away and say, you know what, I'm going to pay more attention to pain in my practice and I'm going to be looking at this um, um, as I evaluate the outcomes of the treatments that I apply. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Payne, for chatting with us. I look forward to hearing that talk in full, and um, I guess on behalf of the community of my life, I'd like to thank you for your continued support, role, advocacy, championing, future research. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So again, another really interesting excerpt from, from your interview with uh, Dr. Failing. I think from this part, what really um, was hammered home to me is the importance of pain in uh, patients with DCM. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit more about that, Ben. Yeah, no, it, it, I have to say it took me off guard. I mean, we conducted the, the original survey very much like what had been done in spinal cord injury with Kim Anderson's paper. And I'm sort of in anticipating we would sort of validate that what we were doing in trying to improve hand and walking function were going to come out as the priorities. And the pain thing came a bit out of the blue, but the more we followed up on that now, the more I talk to people in, in the clinic, 
it really is there. And I think the reason we've been missing it is that perhaps it's not the, the priority at the person at the diagnosis point, but it's the kind of thing that emerges as time goes on when they adjust to some of the disability. It's the bit they're left living, living with and, and really struggling with. Yeah, and it's really going to impact on quality of life, isn't it? I, I really suspect so. And, you know, I think it's a it's a finding that is certainly um, not agreed with by many people in the field at the moment. But the more we dial into it, um, and I think it's been supported by that work that, that Michael Faines has done with, with the data sets that he has, it really does show that pain improves with surgery and is a major part of, of the condition. And um, I think, you know, we need to target our research accordingly. So I think one of the other interesting things that he mentioned there was the potential overlap that can come from from the sort of infrastructure, particularly in research and, and funding, from traumatic spinal cord injury, because there is definite overlap in in this disease, disability, the implications, and of course the traumatic spinal cord injury environment is a much more active research environment. It's got a lot of charities, uh, groups really fundraising and driving that, and. You know, maybe that is something that we need to try and work on to try and bring those fields closer together. And obviously, Michelle, you've that was a field that you did work in for, for many years. And do you think there's something that can, can come together there? Yeah, definitely. And I think I've admitted this uh, on the podcast before, so <laughs> I'm happy to say it again. But having worked in the traumatic uh, spinal cord injury field, I'd actually never heard of um, degenerative cervical myelopathy, which now that I know more about it is absolutely shocking because like you say, you know, it's it's similar processes. And actually, like you say, it's a very, it's a big and active field, um, which has um, funding coming into it relatively. Um, relatively regularly because it's um, quite dramatic, isn't it? And you can tell stories about it that pull at people's heartstrings, um, which brings in money to the traumatic spinal injury field that isn't being brought into the DCM field at the moment. And I agree with you. I think on a biological level, there's a lot that could be learnt um, from the traumatic injury um, side that could feed into information about DCM. And perhaps vice versa as well. I mean, I've even actually heard Dr. Failings talking about this at a meeting about traumatic spinal cord injury and just reminding everybody in the room, you know, don't forget about DCM. There's a huge amount of people that are suffering with it. Um, the mechanisms and processes are very similar. Um, this should be something on your radar that you should be writing into your grants and looking at. So fingers crossed for the future. Let's hope so. And so I guess we should turn to what's coming up next then. Yes. So as mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we're going to be going full speed ahead with our AO Spine Recode DCM podcasts about the top 10 priorities. That's right. And the first episode or at episode zero, an introductory episode kicks off with a conversation between ourselves and Dr. Mark Cotter, who, of course, amongst other roles, is the chief investigator of that project. Yes. And then in the subsequent podcast, there's going to be 10 in total where we focus on each of the um, the priorities. We're going to be hearing from uh, experts from all over the world, actually, from people living with DCM. So they're experts in their field, as well as surgeons working um, on people with DCM and, and helping to change their, their situation. And what we're hoping to do is that we can showcase each of the priorities and why it matters by talking to different people and their different experiences of it, and then ask them how they think uh, these questions should be addressed. Stay tuned. 
So thanks very much to Dr. Michael Failings for joining us. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. If you've got a question about myelopathy, we'd love to get it answered in the podcast. Please connect with us on Facebook or through the website. And of course, the website also holds lots more information and support. And that's at myelopathy.org. The research priorities for myelopathy are now available at aospine.org forward slash recode. And we'll be covering them in a special series of podcasts later this year. So why not subscribe to your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode? Until then, goodbye.